So Moses has one last mountain to climb, and it's the hill he's going to die on. He is about to send God's chosen people into their promised land, and his final speech to them is the book of Deuteronomy in the Bible. And he has been speaking to them and for them for over 40 years, and it has been spectacular and very disheartening. He it was who brought them the news that God was going to set them free from slavery in Egypt. He it was who told them to believe when they found themselves between the devil and the deep blue sea, when Pharaoh and his armies were chasing them. He it was who led them in their song of victory after God parted the waters, let them go through and then drowned their enemies. He received the law from God and he then saw and heard God's anger at them for all that they had been doing, their rebellion and their, their disbelief. And he had to bring the news to them that because of this disbelief, they were not going to be able to enter the promised land for another 40 years. And they were going to have to wander the wastelands in waiting. And now he comes to the end of his journey and he sings a song which we're going to sing, uh, we're going to read, sorry, just the first few lines of. It's in Deuteronomy 32. And Moses says, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of Yahweh, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness, And without iniquity, just and upright is he. That is God's word about our God. If you're following our uh, daily Bible reading plan, uh, you'll have uh, read maybe several of these themes this morning in Psalm 92. And as I was uh, planning on preaching this passage this week, I I happened to buy uh, the big issue. Uh, One of the rare moments I had change on me, so I felt I ought to. And I just went home and just literally opened it at random. And there was a picture of Moses. That was not what I was expecting in the big issue. And it was a comment piece by uh, the magazine's founder, actually. And the headline read, We need our own Moses to help us focus on the big issues. And it was a really interesting article about how leadership is required to bring uh, clarity and unity and harmony when there is a cacophony of noise going on. And it was really interesting. But I'm going to stick with the original Moses today, and I want him to focus us again on the biggest of issues, the greatest commandment, that we might love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our might. And as Raph has said in the video reminded you, we are doing that in this preaching series by looking at the nature and the character of God. And today I'm going to focus on that word that Moses used in that, uh, that introduction to his song. He said that God's works are perfect. And I would imagine if, you, if you're a Christian or not here today, if you're like, what do most people think God is like? You would probably have perfect on that list. Obviously the trouble with that is, we all have a different idea of what that perfect would look like. So what we're going to do today is uh, look at the two main words the Bible uses for perfect 
and try to understand more about God uh, through them and how they uh, help us to see his, his deeds and his works and his heart and his being. And it's a big deal. This word isn't actually used a huge amount in the Bible, but we're going to see it really does describe everything about him. And so we need his help to comprehend him. So why don't we ask him to do that? Lord, we thank you that you are here with us, the only perfect one. And you're going to take imperfect words and you're going to bring them into imperfect minds. And we are trusting that you would work your perfection in us in these moments, that we might see you more clearly, that we might understand you more deeply, that we would love you more passionately. Help us, Lord. This is beyond any of us. That is your joy to reveal yourself to us. So please do so. Amen. The Hebrew word that Moses uses, which we translate perfect here in this passage, is tamim. And it can mean unblemished, healthy, whole. I have been watching as much of the Olympics as I possibly can uh, the last couple of weeks. I love it. And there are various sports that seem to me to fit within this, the kind of category of unblemished, uh, without fault. Yeah, so uh, you're a gymnast or maybe a diver uh, or a, a horse rider and you have a routine to perform. And the aim of that routine is basically not to make any mistakes, to be without blemish. And it's agonizing, isn't it, really to see any of them do it because they're at this peak of their life potentially and they might make a mistake and it could all go wrong in that moment. Perfection in, in these kind of sports is, is essentially considered the absence of mistakes. You've got to get it right. And this word tamim is often used to describe um, in the Old Testament the animal sacrifices that were made to God um, for the sins that the people had committed. Those animals were to be uh, substitutes uh, for the people, that what they'd done was uh, deserving of death, but instead of them dying, these animals would die in their place. And because this was an amazing thing to do, because this was really serious and really important, really valuable, the animals involved had to be the absolute best that the people owned. They couldn't be like, well, it's going to die anyway, and I can't eat it, so I'll just send off you know, one of the lame ones or whatever. No, the animals had to be perfect. They had to be without fault. And Moses declares that this same principle applies to God himself and his ways. That God never makes mistakes, that he never does anything wrong. He's never unfair or unfaithful or unable. There is no fault in him, nor even the possibility of it. Now, as I said, we might have a sense of God being perfect and we'd think, oh yeah, of course he's God, so he'll be perfect like that. And the reason most of us here will think that is because we are, we've had the Bible's definition of God um, become normative for us. But Moses was speaking at a time when people weren't expecting the gods to be like that. The gods were very fickle. The gods couldn't be trusted. The gods could be bribed by you, but then by someone else. Um, you just you couldn't know how they were going to respond. They might, you might just suddenly find yourself on the wrong side of them for no reason that you could comprehend at all. And so Moses is bringing something very new to people here. He's saying, no, this God is a rock who you can absolutely build your life on. There's no fault in this rock. These foundations are utterly secure. They are without fault. So that was the, 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 mis, the wrong thinking that God's people then were probably experiencing. But I think we, have, we tend to have a different kind of wrong thinking. When I start saying God never makes mistakes, he never does anything wrong, he's never unfair, he's never unable, I know that each of us are going to start flinching a little as we hear that. 
Because we're going to think of events that have happened to us or that have happened in history. Uh, We're going to think about things that maybe we've even seen or read in God's word that have confused us, that have troubled us. Again, if you're going through our Bible reading plan at the moment and you are keeping going through Ezekiel in the Old Testament readings, it's hard, isn't it? And there's stuff in there. We're like, what does that mean? What does that say about God? Now, we might not necessarily be comfortable saying it. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands right now. Who, when I say God is perfect, is like, is he really? But those things are in each of us. So let's let Moses be our guide here. Let's let Moses be our teacher. Because there was a time when Moses talking about God's perfection would have made perfect sense. Because his life seemed pretty perfect. He had been adopted and raised as a prince of Egypt. So he was a really powerful person in the most powerful nation on earth. All of its riches were were brought together so that the royals in that nation could do really well. And so we could say that Moses' life at that point was perfect. It was lacking nothing. He had only the best. He had wealth. He had power. He also had social isolation from all those who weren't experiencing those things. So either from his own experience or a general naivety about the world, Moses at that point could have said, oh, God is perfect. But he doesn't say it then. Which is interesting because there's a strand of Christianity which would say that that point in Moses' life, when everything's going well, well, that's when we would say that we see proof of God's perfection. It's a way of understanding the Bible that really has a lot more about the way of the world in it than it necessarily understands. It says, well, we'll say God's perfect when everything in our life is going perfectly. And that's what we should expect. But that isn't what Moses does. He says that God is perfect 80 years later after an enormous amount of hardship and discouragement and personal anticlimax for him as well. He has this one moment of unbelief and God says, okay, you can't go into the promised land that you've led this people to. This is the point at which Moses says, God's work is perfect. He looks back over 400 years of slavery that his people have experienced and the 40 years of wilderness wandering they've been going through. And he's got a prophetic gift and he can look forward and he sees that the people are going to compromise, that they're going to rebel against God. He knows that that is going to bring judgment and punishment and suffering. And he says of God, his work is perfect. It would seem he's using a different method of measurement to ours, wouldn't it? Now, this isn't to say that Moses doesn't have strong dialogues with God about what's going on. Um, We might even slightly tentatively call them arguments uh, with God if they didn't feel so entirely one-sided. But Moses does say to God, why is this happening? If you're like this, why, why is this going on? And throughout the Old Testament, we find many faithful people doing this. And because it's recorded in the Bible, we've therefore, we've got permission and also a pattern from them on how to do this, on how to, how to bring God's perfection to him in conversation. But at the conclusion of his life, despite many things not having gone as he wanted them to go, Moses declares that God is faultless. So let's push into that together. God's perfection means in part that he doesn't experience imperfection like we do. So this isn't all of it yet, but this is a big part of it. He doesn't experience imperfection like we do. 
So the most physically fit here amongst us at some point is going to have to sleep and replenish their energy levels. That's going to happen. However strong, however healthy you are, you are going to need sleep and you are going to need refueling. The most loving person here doesn't even love everyone in this room as much as um, they possibly could, let alone everyone. And they shouldn't even try to. No one would encourage a human being to do that. You must love everyone you've ever met to the absolute maximum. No one would say that's how to live because we know none of us can do that. The most engaged in social action amongst us still has a limit to what they can do and a point at which news fatigue hits. We have these limitations and that's okay because we are finite creatures. We're not meant to be infinite. But we also have moral faults and weaknesses. We love imperfectly. We work imperfectly. We think and talk and act imperfectly. And we do this every day. Now, obviously, I've had the last few days thinking about this topic and thinking about this to reflect on it. And just to be clear, it's definitely true. I know it's news to you today. Oh, yeah, I haven't been perfect today. No, you haven't. And I'm going to make you a promise about the rest of today, let alone the rest of your life. For us, it's a, imperfection is a daily experience. We, you know, we react wrongly before we have time to think, don't we? That, that's often when I react wrongly, that's what I say. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't have time to think about that. Uh, isn't that interesting then? I have a reflex to act imperfectly. That's annoying, but it's true. We get, some of us even, we get so used to doing wrong that we start to think that it's right. We find ways to explain it as being right when it's wrong. God is not like this at all. Habakkuk 1.13 says that he is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. In Jeremiah 7, God is uh, listing some of the terrible things his people have done. And he says, I did not tell you to do that. And then this amazing phrase, he says, nor did it come into my mind. There's things that all of us think. and We're like, I can't believe I just thought that. God has never experienced that. This is faultless perfection, not just an occasional avoidance of doing the wrong thing, not even a growing better at not doing the wrong thing, but eternal, perfect perfection. A complete and utter avoidance of all that is wrong, ever. A consistent separation from it and hatred of it. This is part of the perfection of God. It's an awesome thing to consider. And in this moment of pausing in awe, just consider what that is like and how far beyond our comprehension it is, uh, another question rises, doesn't it? If he's like that, he's not going to want anything to do with me. Because if he's like that and I'm like this and I know that I am and I trust from God's word that that's what he's like, What's he going to want to do with me? And if this is the question we're now asking, rather than if God is perfect, then why did this happen? Then I think we're getting to where Moses wants us to be. And what we find at this point is even more perfection. When Jesus walked the earth, he said, which one of you convicts me of sin? And no one could answer him. 
Pontius Pilate declared of him, I find no guilt in him. And he spoke better than he knew. God in his perfection walked on the earth. And what did that look like? Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. God's perfection, which is a separation from all that is wrong, comes and lives amongst us. And how does he live amongst us? He comes really close to all those who are clearly nowhere near perfect. He engages with them. He talks with them. He touches them. He eats with them. The diseased and the troubled, the hopeless and the foolish, because his faultless perfection is not in conflict with these other characteristics, but it includes his perfect love, his perfect compassion, his perfect mercy. Jesus isn't weighing these things out at that point. I think we sometimes think it's about God, that he's got these different characteristics. He's got to kind of keep in balance. No, not at all. He is perfectly holy and perfectly loving. He is 100%. Both of those things at the same time, and we see that in Jesus. And this all comes together in that final moment. All those animal sacrifices that had to be without blemish, that had to be blameless, they were still nowhere near valuable enough to pay for all that we've done. But now Jesus has come, and he is declared to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All our faults and failures can be dealt with by him who had none. He, bring, he takes ours upon himself, though he is without fault, and he takes them to God. And Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by a single offering of his own life, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So all those who put their trust in Jesus, who put their trust on what happened on the cross as being for them, God perfects them in Jesus. This is his perfect love. This is how it cashes out. This is how God's perfection looks like, what it looks like. So how do we feel about this? How do we respond to this? Should we not? I mean, love him at all times. Should we not trust in his love at all times? Let us not be fooled into thinking that God only has affection for or interest in perfect people. That is a lie that is meant to keep you out of the embrace of your heavenly father's arm. God is, uh, Jesus has shown us so clearly what God's word teaches, which is that God loves to rescue those who are in trouble. He is not waiting for you to be perfect. And for all those of us who have already cast ourselves upon him and said, please rescue me, he does not do so grudgingly. He is not impatient with us. He is not like, oh man, I've just got, I'm somehow forced to put up with these people. No, it is his delight to rescue you in your imperfection because in your weakness, his strength is made perfect. He shares his perfect love with those who do not deserve it and who can't really even comprehend it. And so amongst the people of God, perfectionism is not required. We are released, therefore, from a drive to perform. A a perfectionism, a kind of like, I've got to be doing right, and maybe if I'm not doing right, I need to at least look like I'm doing right. That is just not what we do here. 
we're to be honest with each other. We're to be like, I am, yeah, I am utterly imperfect. It applies to the leaders here, just to be clear, as much as anyone else. You don't get promoted to leadership here at King's Club. You've definitely reached a standard of perfection. Great. Okay, that is not how it works. You mustn't look for perfection in us because you, you aren't going to find it. But you can and should expect that we'll be doing our best and growing because that's actually God's will for all his people. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said that followers of Jesus aren't perfect, but their heart's desire is to become perfect. We have a longing to be like our God. So this isn't saying, oh, well, you know, you do you. Oh, yeah, you're rubbish at that. What can you do? Hey, No, we want to grow in the grace of God. He wants us to grow. And it's this that takes us into our second word for perfect in the Bible that we're going to spend less time looking at, but it's still really important. It's the Greek word. And all the Greek words for perfect come from this word telos, which has a slightly different range of meaning from the Hebrew word tamim. So with telos, the sense is of maturity. It's of completion. It's of fulfillment. It's of achieving an intended goal. So if this is Olympic sport, this is crossing the finish line ahead of everyone. This is, well, not, it's not the ahead of everyone that matters, but it's getting to the end. It is achieving what you meant to do. It is hitting the target. It's taking the Olympic motto of faster, higher, stronger, which is all about human progression, and it's putting it into divine perfection. Fastest, highest, strongest. That is the point that we get to, this incredible fulfillment. See, sometimes we, we do this, don't we? We think if someone's perfect, how would we refer to them as that? It means they don't make any mistakes. And that's all that we see perfection as to being. Almost a negation. I think we've seen in God that that isn't the case. But we're tempted to think that way, aren't we? The holiest people we know are those who don't do lots of things and define them by what they don't do. But the Old and New Testaments both command us to action and to action in imitation of the God who acts, whose love overflows, whose perfection is expressed outwardly, positively. The great commandments aren't avoid things, but love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And so when Jesus comes to earth, his perfection isn't shown in simply being free from sin, but in doing good. Mark puts it in his gospel. There's a moment Jesus has been doing a whole load of amazing things. And the crowd, Mark says, were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. This is an active perfection. So when Jesus heals people, he does it completely. They're totally, totally healed. And the reason he does it is because he has incredible compassion on them and he wants to bring glory to the Father. His motives are perfect and his work is perfect. When he teaches, it's all true. There's not a single bit that he's like, yeah, okay, don't, yeah, I got that bit wrong. He never says that because it's all right. And it's perfectly able to challenge those who are far too comfortable. And for those who are hopeless, it brings hope to them. There's life in his very words. And his life matches exactly what he says. There's not a hint of hypocrisy in him. He perseveres in that life through long periods of obscurity and of just being misunderstood and being rejected. And then he comes to the final hardest circumstance that anyone has ever, ever faced. 
And he goes to his death in willing submission to the will of the Father and for the good of others. Even as they're killing him, he's praying for their forgiveness. And as he calls out on the cross in agony, he quotes a psalm that ends with a note of victory. It's just this moment of pure trust at the greatest of tests. He fulfills it all. He completes it all. His defeat of sin and death are total. No enemy will escape his punishment. No friend can be taken from his hand's grasp. So again, Hebrews says, he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He started it. He will bring it to completion, to fulfillment. The way Christians experience this at the moment is that his Holy Spirit is at work in us, slowly, patiently, but powerfully. He is changing us to be perfect like he is, the very image of God. It is going to take more than our lifetime to do it, but he is committed to doing it. Paul, Paul, the Apostle Paul says he's not got there. So just in case any of you are like, oh, he's definitely asked me to be perfect. I'm not doing that. Paul says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And so now we press on with the Holy Spirit whilst we wait. We are trusting in our perfect God who will one day finish his work in each of us. There'll be a moment when we die or Jesus comes back when he will transform us. And that is the day when all sin and failure will be banished. They will be done with. There'll be no more of that. Justice will finally and totally be done. And the children of God will become fully like the Son of God. And the two words we've looked at today, which have always and always are true of God, will become true of us. We will be without fault and we will be living life in its complete fullness, which is with him. Appropriately enough, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul describes that day as when the perfect comes. And surely on that day, we will say with Moses, as we can do now, The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways of justice. God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Let's pray and then we're going to sing together. Lord, it says somewhere in your word, that if you found fault, who could stand? Lord, we acknowledge our faults. We say they are manifold. They are so many, we don't even see them. We just confess that, Lord, our our weaknesses and our faults. We're aware we live in a culture that tells us, no, no, you're fine. And we say, no, we're really not. We look at you in all your beautiful, sinless perfection. We say, there's one who's without fault. And we're in awe of you. And we're amazed by you. 
that this sinless perfection works itself out as rescuing love, as a lamb of God who takes away our sins and by one offering, one sacrifice, makes us perfect in your eyes. Thank you, God. And so, Jesus, as you so beautifully and perfectly lived life here on earth, showing us what God is like, so now, please, work in us who are putting our trust in you. Make us more like your son. Fulfill your plans for our life. Fill us again, freshly now, with your Holy Spirit. Even this week, help us to have conversations where we confess our weaknesses, but press on to take hold of that for which God has taken hold of us. Make us like you, Jesus. We know we're not, and we're so glad, but make us like you. We love you, Lord God. Amen.